welcome to The Thin Place, a podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That's me! This is episode number 53 for June 2015. Our topic for this episode is Tokyo Story, the 1953 film by director Yasujiro Ozu. As a film, as you might expect for a film made in 1953, this is not a spoiler-free discussion. If you haven't seen the film and don't want plot spoilers, now would be a great time to check out any number of our other podcasts that are available. So, Ken, would we call it a family drama? Well, it's a drama about family. It's a family story in the sense of the plot, such as it is, revolves around uh, an elderly couple visiting their adult children, and in one case, their daughter-in-law, in Tokyo, spending a little bit of time with each of them, going back to the village after the visit. Mom or grandma gets sick. The adult children are come from, uh, are called for, uh, she dies, and there's perhaps a bubbling over of some familial tensions. I think it's traditionally framed as being a story about adult children neglecting their parents or not treating their parents right in some way and then feeling bad about it when mom dies. I'm not sure that I saw that reading or get that reading. I think there's some assumptions, some readings in made there. Certainly, I think one of the things we see in the plot, and you have an adult, you know, an elderly couple from the country who comes to Tokyo um, to visit their adult children, and all of their adult, the adult children are doing things that normal adult children do. I mean, they have their own families, they have their careers that are going, and they all have busy lives. Yes. And mom and dad coming to visit does put a wrench in things. Um, Mm -hmm. The sin of the adult children, such as it is, is that they're more interested in their day-to-day lives and conveniences or timetable or schedules than they are in the current status of their relationship with their adult parents. Yeah. And why I push back a little bit on the notion of the film being exclusively about that is because I think a close look at the film also shows that the adult, the parents or grandparents are equally interested in their own lives and right. than they are in the status of the relationship with their uh, adult children. I don't think this is, uh, I, I don't think Tokyo Story lays the blame at any one character no. or any one generation, you know. And I would say that one of the things I find successful about the film is that it, it is not a simplistic film. It is not overly emotional or single-sided in these things. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we never find out really in the film, you know, how much planning had gone into this trip. Um, how much how much prior notice did the kids have? And so we don't know that. Um, what was the kids' transitions from leaving the village and going to Tokyo? Going was to that Tokyo. something the parents um, wanted or didn't want? Or And, you know, and, and it is not overly... I mean, we, repeatedly we, we find that the father, the elderly father, 
um, had a drinking problem. He doesn't now, but he did. Um, that certainly created um, some negative situations for the kids when they were growing up. Um, so, I mean, this this is not a squeaky clean, the perfect parents coming to it, visit. It's and, not make way for tomorrow, where, you know, it's a melodrama about the elderly being cast aside. Right. If it, anything, actually the analogy that I kept going back to over and over again in my notes was King Lear. You know, it seemed very King Learish to me. Okay. That, that sense of like, there, there are complaints to be had on both sides of, uh, of this divide and, um, maybe Lear focuses obviously is stacked way more in terms of the kids being more sinned against than sinning. But, but that, that in that sort of, uh, plot machination of the painful realization of the deterioration of the bond or relationship between children who are now adults and parents who were once more meaningful to them than they are now. Right. And parents' painful realization of, of not having an identity, you know, um, or not sure what their identity is. Our discussion in terms of Thin Place, looking at Ozu's story, discussions of religion, faith, and, and spirituality, I, I think have really focused on, on two threads, family and culture. And one way that Tokyo's story has been successful for me is that it's made me articulate the question of whether or not family, and particularly the organization of family, is a, there's a right way to do it, or should be done, whether expectations or assumptions that we have about family are platonic or absolute because they're handed down from God in the Bible, if you're Christian or someplace else, it says, this is the way the family should be organized, and this is the way that the relationship between constituent members of the family uh, should be for all time forever, and therefore this story should be seen within the filter of how well this family or does or does not conform to our expectations of what families are supposed to be and how families are supposed to act. Or whether or not our, our expectations of family are enculturated, uh, like so many other things that are perhaps informed by our religion, but are also informed by the time and place uh, that we live in that informs our religious understanding. So that's actually, I guess, a two-part question, which would be, uh, one is, what do you personally taught as a thin place person think about family, whether it's an absolute, there's an absolute model of family that we all need to conform to. And the second is as a purveyor of the film, um, do you feel as though Ozu is, what do you feel as though the, the film's attitude is about that question? That's such a simple question. Ken. <laughs> No, I um, I think one of the things that I found very interesting, and, and I find this interesting whenever I watch foreign film or non-U.S. film, is especially films that focus in on things like family or that seem to be you know universal human condition. You know, 
we all have family of some kind. And you know, here is a film, 1953 Japan. So we're talking, you know, not too long post-war. Obviously, the Japanese culture at the time was going through major upheaval. Lots of Western influence was coming in. And, and you see some of that in the, in the film itself. I think there's some interesting small details that we don't need to get into there. But, you know, there are certain patterns in the, the family relation that seem to me somewhat universal. Okay. Um, you know, we, we've got mom and dad. We've got the kids. Um, and even though the kids have moved away, there is still, you know, this, there, there seems to be an expectation that when mom and dad come to visit, that there's going to be a space made for that visit. That's going to be something special. Children in the film certainly feel that they need to entertain. They need to go out and get the best food or, you know, there's conversations about, well, is this good enough? Is that, oh no, they'll, they're, they're fine with the cheap stuff or not. Um, you know, these various, you know, what are the ways in which we show honor to, to the parents? Um, that to me felt very common. Now, does that ring true to you in terms of common or universal or? Well, it's interest, not really. I mean, it's interesting to me that you framed those things around honor mm -hmm. or giving honor. Because in some ways it, it gets framed for me as what is natural or unavoidable is that whatever the relationship is with the parents, it's a disruption. And owning the fact that their presence is a disruption is not attempting to make a neutral, is not attempting to make a statement about the goodness or the badness of the relationship mm -hmm. or about them. It's simply to say that they are not a daily routine part of the life and therefore their presence where it wasn't there before disrupts the physical space. Yeah. The kid's desk has to be moved. Right. You know, there are, there are considerations that one has to make and those considerations aren't permanent because, and, and so in that way, the parents are, are treated as guests, um, and some of the problems that the parents' presence create are the problems that one would have with any guest. Of we can't do what we, you know, a typical family member would say, "Pay no attention to me. Just do what you would normally do." Well, what I would, I can't do what I would normally do because you're occupying the space that I would normally right. do it in, or or something like that. Uh, so uh, now, I, I think there is this assumption in a lot of. Christian cultures or American cultures that if your relationship with your family or your adult parents is a good one, that ought not to be a disruption. There ought to be this, your ability to be able to negotiate that routine or those rituals ought to be more successful because there's love in there or that you honor your parents by saying you're not disruption when that would be a meaningless statement and, yeah. and you know, steadfast well, lie. Or, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that, that it would be interesting to, to see how... Maybe you're not an unwelcome, you know, right. ways of making, saying you're not an unwelcome disruption. Or and, and I think about that, I mean, in my own personal situation, I haven't lived with my parents since I was 18. Mm -hmm. And for most of the time 
since then, I mean, not even lived in the same state. So any visits were kind you know, they were always a deal. You know, it was always some, whether it was a holiday or it was some, something, spe- you know, people had to go out of their way mm-hmm. to have a visit. And so, it, I mean, on the one hand, yes, it, it's a disruption. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was always a disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that there was ever any expectation that it not be a disruption. Okay. Um, but there definitely was a, that idea that we are family yeah, that this is a, a welcome disrupt, disruption. I think mm-hmm. was always the you know the assumption. Yeah. Um, so I mean, still a disruption, but it's one that we're happy to have. Right. Um, and I think in in Tokyo's story, the welcomeness of the disruption is perhaps a question. Well, it's a question. It's a very strong question for me because. Of a, a dominant theme in, in your and my discussion in the film is about this sort of way in which the family communicates, uh, which I've called, you know, for lack of a better phrase, and attributed to the Japanese culture, this sort of ritual of dishonest politeness where everyone feels constrained to say, oh, no, it's not a disruption. You're not putting me out because that's what I'm supposed to say, perhaps as an indication of I love you so much that it doesn't put me out. And what that ends up doing for me is it's so patently not true and we should that, say that yeah. that uh, how can I really you know believe anything else that you were saying? And we, and we should say that I mean I think the film is clear that yeah. this is dishonest. Um, you know, I think where you're getting some of this feeling of dishonesty is is not totally out of the blue. I mean we get scenes where when the children when the adult children are talking to the parents, mm-hmm. there's all of this. Oh yes, of course, do this. You know all the politeness. And then in the very next scene, the adult children are on the phone to each other talking about, you know, who they can pass off the parents to. I mean, there is some actual dishonesty. Well, yes. And I mean, I don't want to harp on the Japanese. I mean, we all do that, right? I mean, we all spare other people's feelings or say the nice thing. Uh, What seems, where I throw the word ritual in there, seems to me... The, the degrees to which or the frequency with mm-hmm. which that is done where, at least in my own experience, perhaps my family's more direct because, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm half Mexican, half Irish, half <laughs> whatever, um, would be, okay, I'll ask you once, is this an imposition you want me to go anyplace else or whatever, or you're free to do whatever, and if you say no, then I'm going to take you at your word or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And similarly, if you ask me, okay, is this a disruption? That's my opportunity to say yes or no. And if I say whatever I say, I'm not going to expect you to say, to say, well, he knew that I just said that because I was polite, but really it is. I mean, I just wrote down in my notes, it's a couple of examples. Um, I hope we haven't inconvenienced you. Please don't bother. Let me help you. Folding clothes. Don't bother. Sorry to start. Sorry to stay so long. You must be tired. Not really. 
Oh, Mama, how about going to bed? Sorry to spoil your Sunday uh, to the neighbor. I keep bothering you. It's no trouble at all. Not at all. Not at all. I'm sorry you had to take a day off for us. So the repetition y- of know, the protests. P- please or- don't worry. You know, please don't worry. You know. Um, yeah, the, the constant repetition of that rituals of I'm a nuisance, I'm a bother. No, you're not. Well, y- you know, I-, I get that that's a sort of ritualized politeness, and I get too that maybe people who are worried about it would bring it up and then have to be reassured right. more than once. But then it seems to me as though that gets encrusted into a kind of enculturated habit, which makes any kind of authentic exchange of feeling impossible or very, very difficult. And and that was part of my frustration with the film. I own that it's frustration with the people and not in the film with the characters and not with the film. But it's it's like, it's hard for me to say, oh, this is terrible, this sort of neglect and hurt feelings and and lack of a relationship. But for me, relationships are built on communication. And it would be impossible to develop a healthy relationship in which people honored each other's feelings Mm -hmm. when there's no room to express what your your feelings are. And And I think it's interesting that as we're talking about this, one of the the relationship between the older brother and then and then the daughter the, who owns a beautician names are escaping me at the moment. But um, you know, two of the older siblings seem to actually have that kind of rela- of good communication. You know, they're the ones that are that we see most often talking to each other on the phone, making plans, doing all this, stuff. And, and they seem to be pretty much on the same page. He's capable of it, and, capable with each other, and, and talking with each other. Um, it's it's not there with the other family members, but with those two seem close, and it's because they do communicate somewhat honestly with each other. Um, they don't have you now, and maybe there's something with the ages and who knows what um, that they don't feel this, the requirements of the ritual. So, so that's one thing with the, the enculturation yeah. of communication. But I want to circle this back to his family right. and expectations of family because I'm wondering if that's informing our reading of the film. And the question that's sort of been hanging out there is, is, is a particular relationship amongst your family or with your family something that is a good to be strived for? Is an expectation that this is the way that things ought to be? Or is simply a, a cultural expectation that's part of evangelical America and Japanese culture or something like that, but is not this sort of universal way that things are? And, I, I mean, I'll tip my hat a little bit by, by part of what I was thinking about this. Towards the end, when one of the adult kids is complaining to, is it Kyoko or Kyoto? Nor, Kyo. nor, or Noriko. 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 The, the, the widowed son. And yeah, Noriko, the good daughter-in-law. Yeah. Is one of those complaining. And she says they have their lives. They want, they just want to live their lives. And I read that as being an extension of, and I have my own life too. I, you know, right. uh, I don't want my life to just be about caretaking someone else or be an extension of some, someone else. Well, there seems to be this, this sort of, in a lot of modern discussion of the film, like, Oh, how horrible. Or something. the parents raised you up 
and now you don't want to have anything to do with them. Well, she's not saying I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm just saying I want to have my I want to have space to have my own life. And I mean, I think of as a as a Christian, I've always been instructed that the age of marriage is the part in which you separate from your parents. You, you leave and cleave. <laughs> and you cleave to your wife and you form your own family unit. Right. And that it's not bratty or wrong to say that somehow that's not incompatible with the biblical notion of honoring your parents or something right. like that. That honor doesn't mean I have to build my whole life or construct my whole life around them into their adult life and then they can only when they die can I have my own life and then my kids will build their lives around me. That there is something in which there is honor or respect is something different than that sort of mechanical problem of how do we organize our lives and whose job is it or whose responsibility is it who is required to bend to the other person, bend to the other person's schedule, bend to the other right. person's requirement, or, you know. And, and I think the, the key in that is that, you know, this story is about a family that's not living together. I mean, they're not, the, the, the parents right. are off in the, in the small little village far away. It's a day's train journey. All of the adult children are in Tokyo and, and, and not in the same part of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. They are spread out all over Tokyo. And so, you know, they they have the space. Their relationships are not even close amongst themselves terribly much because they have their own lives. It would be very different if everybody were all living in the small village. And that's where the, the good daughter is the youngest daughter, Kyoko, mm-hmm. um, who is a school teacher in the village. Right. And she lives with the parents. Um, and so, you know, in, in some sense, she obviously has the closer relationship with the parents because she's with them every single day. The others aren't. And so I, I guess, yeah, in some, in some part of this well, question then is, is this a film about, you know, is the way family is supposed to be that we're all together geographically? Right. Or is, you know, is this the, the threat of the big bad city that it spreads us all out and we get lost and we don't have these connections. Well, we, I mean, we certainly talked about that in, in show discussions of it's called Tokyo. So right. And there, there definitely seem to be scenes talking about how this is the first generation post-war where that family unit is being, really impacted by the forces of modernity and that's exacerbating some of these problems that would most likely still be there if they all lived in the same village but wouldn't be felt in the same way. But I want to circle back to something you said about the school teacher that, you know, the good daughter, which is it's natural that she would have a better relationship because she spends time with them. Right. You know, because she is there. Uh, Late in the film, after mom has died, dad has a conversation with daughter-in-law, and he tries to tell her, well, you've treated us better than our blood, and that's kind of ironic. And, of course, she's having none of it. She does a lot of that ritualized politeness of, oh, don't say that. I'm selfish, too, you know, Uh, blah, blah, blah. 
But there seems to be embedded in that, at least this notion, which I think a lot of people share, that somehow or another, the relationship is forged by blood, and it's natural that blood relationships or biological relationships should trumpet every, everything else. And I think even within the own film, it acknowledges and illustrates that the lifeblood of relationships is presence. Mm-hmm. And, and I, which circles me back to my question about well, what is natural, what is the way right. that it should be. It seems to me like in the biblical mandate, if there is a sense of leaving, that's a sense in which you're not going to be actively present on a day-to-day level with whoever it is that you've left, you know? Now, maybe there were people in the Old Testament who were, you know, who married and still lived in their in-laws or their farms. And and we see that, I mean, just the story of what uh, uh, Rachel and Leah and the names escaping me now. Yes, but I, I'm not sure that I think that's the platonic ideal to be suited for because I don't think there's been a leaving right there. And, and, and that's what I kind of getting at is we, we see that example of, sure, there's these large family, extended families staying mm-hmm. together, and that's going to create a certain type of relationship because you are all together. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and, you know, if you're a nomadic ag- agrarian culture, that's going to have certain benefits and advantages mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. We get a very different picture in other places when you have a more urban, you know, sort of situation. And, you know, in the New Testament, I think some of the discussions, I think, are a little more like what we would understand because they're not. Right. And, and I mean, I don't want to overstate this, but, I mean, I do think that we get examples in literature um, as well of ways in which the, the, the absence of absence, you know, the absence of leaving has created a certain kind of relationship, which we perhaps nostalgize right. as an extended family and make into the model, but has its own sort of problems. I think about, for instance, this is a silly example, but I think about Downton Abbey and the way in which, okay, the whole extended family is there, but there comes a point in which I'm back to my King Lear example again. Things properly should be passed from one generation to another, but through force of habit, the older generation is not used to or hasn't learned to give up some power, to give up some, you know, authority. And certainly within that family, it's a more modern family, they're able to ne- negotiate that to a su- some degree or another, King Lear being, you know, sort of another example of, okay, well, when there's not this leaving, that the the presence of the extended family in one place causes some problems that are equally unhealthy. And I, I don't want to say that extended families are bad. I, you know, I really don't. I've, I've been helped by mine a great deal. But I do want to resist this sort of, what I see sometimes attached to this film, which is this sort of nostalgizing of (coughs) extended families and sort of saying, okay, the modern world has ripped us away from our extended family and has hurt the family in by making it unnatural or not the way that it was supposed to be. And I think you can make an argument that to sort of say, okay, the family unit 
to me, is biblically prescribed. I don't know that the extended family unit Mm -hmm. is, at least in terms of its organization, in terms of its attitude, yes, you should honor your parents, you should be responsible for, you know, your relatives, but this notion that you should live together or, you know, you should live in one place or you should do whatever or that it should all get blurred into this one giant family clan commune seems to me to be much more cultural than absolute platonic, this is the way yeah. that the family should be. And that's, you know, and, and I haven't read the the literature that you have about yeah. the, the film, because I, I don't necessarily see the film nostalgizing this sort of thing. Um, I think there's a definite, it is set in a place where these are, these things are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know that the film is saying we should go back. No, well, um, as much as it is saying, you know, and and this is, you know, we, we've had this discussion too. What is the film saying? Yeah, and and I don't know an American living in 2015 looking at post-war Japan. I don't have all the cultural cues. Yeah, to to read the subtleties of a lot of this stuff. But, you know, I, I think one of the things that the film does do is it, it causes any, it causes us to have this conversation. Right. And, and perhaps to think about our own families and to think about our, the, our own way of communicating. Um, and that's a, a great value. Yeah. I, I don't know that the film itself necessarily has a clear. I, I don't want thing. to put out there, like, I've read extensively on Ozu. I mean, I've read. Paul Schrader's book I've read. So I may be talking more about the discussions of my friends Mm. who are like me in their late 40s, (laughs) you know, early 40s, and who will most likely see a film like this as filtered through their own experience and more likely side with the kids, uh, maybe that maybe project some of their own guilt onto the film and say that it's coming from the film. Uh, David Boardwell does say in his essay for, I think, the Criterion Disc, uh, he talks about Ozu's, quote, compassionate detachment. Um, and that was a phrase that, that puzzled me because I don't know that I found, I don't know, know that I found the film particularly compassionate, uh, towards its characters. But then how could I tell whether the film is compassionate towards its characters? I, I I'm not even really quite sure I know what compassionate detachment what does that mean? Yeah. In the sense of, so if the film felt that way, I wasn't picking up on it, or if the film wanted me to feel that way, then... Well, something I read somewhere, and then this gets us into some of the formal elements, is that might fit into that definition, is that each character gets his or her say. Yeah. And, and, and that even to the, to the point of a scene will not cut away until a, a person is finished speaking. Yeah. And so, you know, whereas in other films, even of the period and certainly contemporary film, I mean, you'll have one person will be giving a, a speech and there'll be multiple cuts going all over the place while they're saying one sentence. Um, you know, in this film, it's very much, here's the shot, person says an entire line, they stop speaking, then we cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe it's a sense of giving each character their say. Yes. Uh, well, certainly, Maybe. If, if we want to talk about formal elements, you and I have talked a lot about um, uh, this famously 
this film famously has two tracking shots in the entire film. Right. Which, which uh, tracking shot, for those of you listening, if any of you don't know, just means where the camera moves rather than having a stationary camera that cuts to another shot or another angle where the camera moves along a track or uh, pivots to follow the particular characters. So it's a very stationary camera. I, I, I wondered, you know, whether that was a thematic choice or a formal choice that the rigidness of the camera in some way relates to the rigidness of the culture and the cultural expectations that these characters are kind of trapped and when there is finally one <coughs> panning shot, it's like, stop, play that back. <laughs> was that a panning shot where little movements seem exaggerated in a culture where everything is so stationary and everything. Now, I haven't seen enough Ozu to compare that to and say whether that's just his style in general or that's a thematic choice that's made for this film that you don't want to read too much into. But I, I felt, uh, it, to the extent that I felt some compassion for the characters, you know, the formal elements, particularly the, the lack of a moving camera, the stationary camera made me feel like, oh, okay, they're, they're, they're rooted to this <laughs> spot. I mean, both literally and metaphorically right. in a way that is, it's a lot harder to break out of your culture and your culture's expectations than it is for some guy 40 years later. <laughs> That's all I got. All right. Well, thank you, Todd. Uh, if you have questions or comments about this episode, uh, you can leave them at our new address. We're being hosted at podcast.com now or at the Podcast Mirror site for my blog, the number one morefilmblog.com. You can also follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield.